This episode of the Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents as well as caring for ourselves. I'm Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP, Adult Children of Aging Parents. There are now an estimated 20 million adult children in the United States and many more millions worldwide who are caring for aging parents and loved ones and are concerned about their own life as they age. In this podcast, we are talking about benefits and eligibility for veterans and surviving spouses. Our interviewee is Brian Query. Brian is the Director of Veterans Affairs for Centre County in Belfont, Pennsylvania. He is an accredited Veterans Services Officer and has been in his current position for nine years. Hi, Brian. How are you today? I'm doing well. Ready to talk a little bit about some benefits here. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, this is the first time that we have offered a podcast on the topic of veterans benefits and eligibility. So we are delighted to have you here with us, Brian, and appreciate all you do and all you're going to offer to our listeners. So thank you for being willing to help us with this information. So there is lots of information about VA benefits. So let's just jump in. There probably are lots of people who may not understand the details, just the basics of VA benefits. So so first off, how would I determine if my parent or loved one or even myself, <clears throat> excuse me, may be eligible for benefits? What documentation would I need and who would I contact to talk about benefits and el- eligibility? Okay, let me preface this a little bit. A lot of the things we're going to talk about today are kind of generic things. And as, as you work more and more with the VA and stuff like that, there's always pretty much exceptions to every rule. So no matter what you kind of find out today or what you think today, you probably always want to go to some sort of a veteran services office uh, officer, somebody that's qualified to kind of look over to assist with uh, submitting these claims because they may be something that's not readily apparent that they may be able to do that perhaps we, we don't get a chance to discuss today on this one. Thank so, you. That's a great framework. Thanks, Brian. You're welcome. So back to then kind of the eligibility for benefits. Pretty much in the VA, uh, it comes down to did the veteran or the person that served, did they serve doing for active duty time? Did they do a call up if they were in perhaps the reserves? or National Guard called up and maybe went overseas. Not necessarily did they go and maybe work for the state, but they were actually called up by the federal government. Then there's also additional thing if they were called up and did they serve in wartime because there might be some additional benefits 
for those veterans that served during the war time. Additionally, uh, then if they have any current disabilities or something that they can somehow link back to their service, okay, they may be able to qualify for some compensation for some payments. Because we're going to talk perhaps a little bit later, both on what compensation and pension. So uh, the compensation here is basically that they have a current disability that somehow they can link back to their service on that. And then wartime is uh, when we talk about the wartime, these are basically set up by the Congress, Congressional Wartime. So, you know, World War II, Korea, uh, Vietnam, and actually roughly since 1980, we've been in a Persian Gulf or a Gulf War scenario ever since 1980 through the present time frame. Wow. Okay. So... Let's talk a little more about benefits. You've sort of alluded to this, but let's talk a little more about benefits that may be available for a veteran. Um, what's available to the veteran, what's available to the surviving spouse? Um, so as far as the veteran goes on that one, so again, if, if they have the correct service time and things like that, so they may have what they call compensation. Uh, and that goes back to what I alluded to a little bit before, where they have a current disability that they can relate to their service. And it might be something uh, that they have hearing loss now on this one. Well, they perhaps they were uh, a gunner or they were in tanks during the Korean War or even World War II. Okay, obviously, they, they were exposed to a lot of high noise levels. As long as they can then link their current hearing loss to that, that uh, service, then the VA will pay them compensation. And this really dates back to uh, during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Uh, when you went to war and you got hurt back then, usually back then if you got injured, you, you ended up losing an arm or a leg. It was pretty catastrophic. And so what the, the thought was is that after you left your service or served your country, you would get compensated for your, your capability or loss of earning power. So they would compensate you for that. And that's kind of then evolved into pretty much any kind of a uh, service-connected disability, you will get compensation. And the amount of money we're talking here, uh, at the low end, it's about $140 per month. And it can go up if you're rated completely over for 100% over three thousand uh, dollars per month so it could be a pretty significant amount of money on that um, and and Brian let me just make sure I'm understanding so the compensation then is in addition to health care services correct correct it's actually um, it is I mean actually what would happen is if you get health care well if you get compensation you qualify for compensation. VA by law is required to treat you to get in. You know, they will treat you for that service connected disability, and then they will also uh, treat you for the other things on that. Now, if you don't have perhaps a service connected disability, and, and but if you have the correct time in the service, and usually we're talking active duty time, based on your income, you could get into the VA health care on that. Uh, and then 
like everything, uh, I have a lot of times that people come, they, they want to get hearing aids from the VA. Well, to get the hearing aids, you're going to have to qualify for VA healthcare and you can sign up for it. And they look at the income as based on your cost of living for the area you live in. So if you're the, the vet lives in a high cost area, you know, they could have, uh, again, they look at gross household income and it could be over uh, $60,000 that they could make and still qualify for that uh, benefit to get into VA health care. And then there may be other services that come through the healthcare side as well. Once you get into it, you know, it gets a free hearing aids. And they also even provide some in-home health care where they actually pay for aids to come into the home and assist with the veteran. The key thing here, and we may talk a little bit about later, is pretty much VA health care is for the veteran only. It's not available, unfortunately, for the spouse of a veteran or the surviving spouse of a veteran. So the health care is just going to be treating the veteran and uh, perhaps providing him equipment, different things like that may be available for him or her as long as they are the veteran. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. So just to make sure I'm understanding, the healthcare is only for the veteran and the healthcare services are tied to income. If, if it can be tied, I mean, if they have, again, if they have a service connected disability, they get a rating. The VA will treat them for that disability. They will get automatically into VA health care. They still probably will want them to put in an application, but they'll automatically qualify for it no matter what their income is. They have a service connected disability, they will be into it, in, into health care. Now, if they don't, again, if they don't have. A, um, a service-connected disability, they will allow you, the veteran to get into health care based on the income on that one. And uh, they only look at income. They don't look at assets. So they would look at the kind of the gross household income. And one of the things I didn't talk about uh, before, and I probably should have, they do correct the income for uh, medical expenses. So if you have a lot of medical expenses, Okay, they will actually, you know, deduct that from your uh, overall income, and that would get you into VA healthcare. And that a lot of times that becomes very key if you're a parent or or a older adult or, or sibling or spouse. You know, if if they're in an assisted living facility or if they're paying a lot of money out of pocket for perhaps for in-home care even though they could be making, you know, $60,000, $70,000, you know, uh, a year, they could be paying, you know, five, six, eight, ten thousand $10,000 a month for the health care, you know. So that would make them eligible for the, the health care to get into it. And that might be something nice because uh, if they would qualify, they might qualify for free medications or something like that, which may not be available, you know, through their regular health care. And the other thing, a lot of times you can be in both VA healthcare and you can be in your regular uh, procured Geisinger, Hershey, whatever you have, the different types of health insurance out there. You can have both. One does not negate the other. So it's always, you can use which one makes the most sense for you. You can use the one that's maybe the cheapest for you, you know, almost like a, perhaps like a Chinese menu. You pick which one that's uh, best for you at that time. 
when that was for us who provides the service. Gotcha. And the key thing though with health care, it is health care. It's not health insurance. So primarily for you to take advantage of it, you have to go there and see a provider on this one. You're not necessarily just going to get a card you can take anywhere. So uh, that's the key distinction between going to VA healthcare and perhaps having insurance through another provider. Brian, are some of these fairly recent changes? And, and I'm asking that just because I can remember when I worked on college and, and university campuses that sometimes our students who were dependents of military families would have a card that was like an insurance card. So are some of these some changes? Well, again, uh, there are just so many things. I don't think we have enough time to talk with everything. But in this case, that's why it's always kind of good to go talk to a VSO. I'm guessing in that case, if the veteran was permanently and totally disabled at 100%, okay, uh, you know, as deemed by the VA, so essentially all their service-connected disabilities when they rated them all, you know, it basically it made up to 100% total rating, and it's not going to get any better, and it's permanently and totally disabled. Then it's a little different ball game because now the spouse and then the uh, the dependents of of that veteran qualifies for a type of actually health insurance. In this case, is called Champ VA. So it there is some possibilities you know, where that uh, they can get some health care. But that's a very specific uh, situation, again, where the veteran was rated uh, at 100% permanently totally disabled on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And that definitely makes a difference. Yeah. Um, you've, talked some, you've talked a good bit about, um, about health insurance benefits or health benefits and health insurance benefits for the veteran and the spouse. Is there anything more that, that we need to say about that? Uh, I don't think so. I think we kind of covered everything. Again, it's kind of hard to look at every situation and kind of anticipate what may be. And I kind of go back to how I opened this up. If you have, like I said, you know, uh, as, you know, an older parent or even, you know, a, a spouse or a sibling, you know, you probably just need to, you know, they served in in the uh, service or in the military. You probably need to reach out uh, to a, a veteran services uh, officer on that one. Now, I'm here in Pennsylvania, and in Pennsylvania, you know, uh, every county has a, a veteran services officer, and that's pretty much nationwide on that one. So if you would go to your uh, county um, uh, government offices, okay, they should have some person that kind of specializes or provides support for veterans on that one. You can reach out to them on that one. And then uh, they'll probably ask you to bring some paperwork. And we, we didn't talk about this to a whole lot of extent, but, you know, if you have the paperwork like a DD-214 after 1950, uh, the services all went to one type of a form on that one. Um, and that shows essentially when they went into the service, when they got out of the service, what their character of discharge 
and, and a lot of these things you know, determine what they may be eligible for on that. Now, if they were in prior to 1950, and generally we're probably talking World War II, they probably won't have a DD-214. Each of the services prior to that time frame had their own type of, of uh, uh, documentation that showed when they went out, and they, they were their own specific uh, type of forms on that one. And so generally you're looking for some form that shows, you know, when the person went into the service, the date, when they got out of the service, the date, kind of how long that they served, okay, uh, and also their character of their discharge, meaning that uh, uh, each time that they serve, they do give them a character of their discharge. And to qualify for just about all these um, uh, benefits that we're talking about today, generally you have to have an honorable discharge on that. Now, again, there may be some exceptions to the rule. So if you do have one where you see it's perhaps other than honorable, type of a discharge or something you're not sure of, you probably need to reach out to some sort of a VSO, uh, you know, either to, it could be a government VSO. We talked about the county person, but a lot of the services like the BFWs, uh, the American legions, different service organizations, they actually have qualified veteran services officers. And, you know, what does that mean? It means they go through training, you know, they're, they're required to do that. Uh, they have probably some testing and uh, they've been kind of working with these and they're familiar with all the documents and what has to be submitted to the VA. The whole thing here, I tell everybody, you know, the VA has a form for everything. So if, if you more than likely, whatever you're going to put in for it, you've got to come up with a form and develop a form. And that VSO will help you, you know, fill out the form and submit it. You. you you just had read my mind because I was just getting ready to ask you a few minutes ago. Now, how exactly would people find this person um, to help them with the Veterans Affairs? And VSO, just to clarify, I'm assuming that is Veterans Services Officer or Office? Yes, okay. correct. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to be sure. I think it's a little bit because I also like a Veterans Services Organization you might hear somewhat, you know, also, and that's, we're talking like the BFWs, American legions, those types of groups. And then it gets a little bit confusing because they may have a BSO, you know, working for them as well on that one. So uh, on that. Right. Right. Okay. This is really good information. Um, d let, let's go in a little different direction. Does the VA have veterans homes and, well, let me stop there. Does the VA have veterans veterans homes? Okay, so technically the VA does not have a veterans home. As in long-term care? As long-term care. Usually each of the states have their homes. So each state will have a veterans home, and the VA will probably be providing money to support those homes. So in addition to them getting money from their individual state. And each state, I think, does it a little bit differently of how they uh, generate the funds to support them. You, you know what I'm saying? But they all pretty much get some money from the VA as a part of that. And what happens is, again, uh, probably the best places to go if you're thinking about going into a, a, a veteran's home, usually a state VA home. And again, being here in Pennsylvania, I'm more familiar with the Pennsylvania ones. You know what I'm saying? So 
it's probably also under the state VA, you know what I'm saying? You can probably look under your individual state, look veterans services for your specific state, you know, and it, I would anticipate it be a .gov, a .gov. You got to be a little bit careful too for some of these things too as a little bit of a side. Be very careful when you're going out there and just searching for something on it. Unfortunately, there are people out there that, that try to make money and, and take advantage of somebody that's, that's, doing, uh, uh, that's trying to find assistance for, a uh, again, a spouse, an older parent, or something like that. The key thing here is, okay, for these initial claims and everything like this, it's, that it's actually illegal to be charged for these. So if somebody's trying to say they want to charge you to get a compensation uh, package or a pension benefits, which we probably need to talk about in a bit here, if they're going to charge you for that, that's illegal, okay? Good Number one, don't pay them, okay? Go away from them. Go to your you know county government or whatever. And uh, if you have the option to, you might want to call your uh, district attorney or the uh, attorney general for your state and report them because that's illegal. It's illegal for me as a VSO to take money for this. You know, I'm paid by my county, you know what I'm saying? And all these other VSOs are either paid, you know, through their county or their service organization that they're under. Okay, they're not here. There is a little distinction then if you go for an appeal and you're engaging a lawyer, then you may be paying for it. But as far as an initial claim to get the things we talked about here, pension compensation, do not, I repeat, do not pay for it. Okay. So. That is really good information. Thank you for that tip, for that insight. Okay. Let me, let me go back to, oh, and let me, let me also say, if anybody has difficulty for whatever reason, I can't imagine having difficulty finding a VSO, a veteran services officer um, in your area. But if you do, I suspect that triple, well, area agency on aging, which is in every, in every community in the entire nation, they, your area agency on aging certainly should have somebody who would know who to refer you to. I'm not suggesting that, that the area agency on aging people would be the experts on veterans affairs, but they should know someone who, who they could refer you to. Okay, so let me go back to the the, the veterans' homes, um, and that may be a misnomer. Um, if so, correct my language on that. But my question is, what would be the typical cost of that, and how would someone even apply to be to become a resident? Well, or is again, that okay, so. Um, there's probably various ways that you can apply to it. You, you know what I'm saying? Again, uh, I'm familiar, again, with Pennsylvania. You can actually go online in Pennsylvania, download the forms, and apply for it. Uh, again, I also assist with them. Again, I'm sure that the VSO, your local veteran service officer, would be able to help you. Uh, probably the AAA, local AAA agency would know how to do this and direct you for that as well. On that now, as far as you know, that's what you could do, and then each state may have a little bit different type of requirements. They probably have residence require residency requirements. 
But again, I'm sure they change from state to state a little bit on that um, uh, type thing. In Pennsylvania, you know, they want you to be a resident of Pennsylvania to go in uh, to a home. But uh, there's also a thing in, for Pennsylvania. If you were a Pennsylvania resident when you went into the service, you, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so and you, you were in the service for quite a while or whatever and then you left, you would still be eligible to go into a Pennsylvania home. You might not be as high as a priority as a current resident, but you would still be eligible. But again, these are probably a state-by-state state, uh, type of requirement. And you have to really look at the individual state to see what their exact requirements are on that. Um, as far as payments on this one, it's kind of a sliding scale Again, I'm more familiar with Pennsylvania, but it's also uh, different states do it a little bit differently as far as how they have their money uh, doing it. Because I think Texas has a fairly big money generating thing. Uh, I think they have some land or somehow they generate a lot of funds for it. And I was just kind of surprised I was trying to help a vet get in there. And their cost uh, was extremely low compared to what I noticed would be here in Pennsylvania. That said, generally speaking, at least again, my experience with Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same throughout the rest of the states too. It's probably going to be cheaper to go to a state veteran's home than what it would be to go to a civilian run, you know, non VA home. Is just think about it right off the bat, you know, um, look at, you know, they're getting some funding from, you know, the state, they're getting some funding from the VA. Okay, so generally in Pennsylvania, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the other states, they look at your capabilities of what you can afford. So they do look at your income and your assets. They take into account, you know, are you married or not, you know, those types of things for that. And perhaps just like you may see too, uh, under you know, older veterans, if, if they or anybody, if they go in for medical assistance, under you know, um, they can still go into a VA home, and the VA home would use medical assistance. So there may be some things that would happen then. Again, more familiar with Pennsylvania, but I think this is similar to the other states. And Francis, maybe you could correct me. But when you go to medical assistance, sometimes they do attach, at least in Pennsylvania, if you have a home or something like that, where when it's sold, they won't force you to sell, but there may be some liens and some things put against that. And I think that's kind of, <coughs> excuse me, nationwide as well on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. <clears throat> and yes, I do know that there are some scenarios um, that, that the house, when it's sold, then becomes the collateral or the payment, yeah. or whatever. But I, but again, yeah, I think you're correct in saying that's something to check with um, with the VA person or your area agency on aging or even an attorney, um, particularly an elder law attorney, to to really understand how all of that works. Um, you you mentioned something and it spurred a question for me, and that is with the veterans' homes, the long term care. Are spouses eligible for that, whether the veteran is still alive and possibly is placed 
himself or herself, or whether the veteran has passed and there is a remaining spouse. Is a spouse eligible for residency? Uh, I'm going by Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, the answer is yes. Okay. okay. And I'm assuming it's probably similar on that one. But what happens is, at least in Pennsylvania, they're not given that the, the non-veteran spouse is eligible to go, even if they're a surviving spouse, but they're they're not as a high a priority as what a veteran would be. And at least in Pennsylvania, they limit the number of beds to, you know, uh, to what they call a, a non-military uh, person on that one. So there are only a certain percentages of the bed are available to them because obviously kind of the priority is is to have the vets there you know, on that. So that what my point would be is there may be a longer wait time or something like that till a bed becomes available. Um, again, in Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure it's the same. You know, they have different skill levels that they provide, you know, personal care up to skilled nursing care on that. So that, that all applies as well. And then um, <clears throat> like anywhere else, uh, they they would uh, uh, just have to say, you know, do they have a bed or they have the capability to meet your needs or the needs of the applicant, you know what I'm saying? And again, there may be some uh, some wait times and stuff. And, and obviously COVID has, has kind of really affected everything you know uh in, in pennsylvania they actually locked down and weren't taking new people for a while they are now so they're they're kind of all working through all these post-covid or i guess technically we're still in covid but you know the, the really the high pandemic areas you know, kind of working through that as well and the other thing i would probably point out too um and i usually tell the people this too if you have the opportunity to go to a state VA home. Again, I'm, I'm primarily going to focus on what Pennsylvania does, but it's the other ones too. If you walk around and that, if you count the number of, of actual people that are employees working there, aides and nurses and things like that, there's a lot more, again, that are in a state VA home as opposed to a non-VA home because Again, they have more funds available to them, and, and they don't necessarily have, I mean, I guess there are some are nonprofits, but even still they have to, you know, they have to break even, you know what I'm saying? And, and some are, you know, a for-profit, you know what I'm saying? So the push is to not have as many employees. So it's a different aspect. So sometimes it might be worthwhile for you if, if the place is open to go and compare. You know what I'm saying? What kind of care, you know, would your, you know, it's, you know older spouse, or parent, or whatever, what would they get? You know what I'm saying? What value would you see for that? On that one, so you might want to look at that as well. You know, and that's always something that we encourage is, and all of this comes back to sooner than later. <laughs> to to before you need the information before you're in the middle of the crisis to find out about all of this find out about what are the benefits that my loved one my parent my loved one can get either as a veteran or the non-veteran spouse you know what is available um, if there is a long-term care facility residential 
residential option nearby. What does that look like? How is that? Um, how do you access that? How, you know, who is eligible for that? What is the cost? How is all of that figured? All of that. It, it definitely is. Um, the earlier, the better. And to do it before you need it to go on and get the information so you have that. So if you ever reach that point of we have to do something quickly, then you have that information. Right. One thing that we, I, I talked a little bit about, I think we, if, I don't know what you have, what you want to question me, but we need to talk about what they call a pension, a non-service connected pension and things like that. So we need to, delve into that a little bit, if that's okay, if we can kind of jump into that right now. Absolutely. Please do. Okay. So when I was talking about compensation and thing, you know, there was no, no discussion there to qualify for it as far as you know, any income limits or asset levels or, or things like that. So that was irregardless of what you would have. Now they do have, uh, they call it for the veteran, they call it a non-service connected pension for the veteran, and then it would be a survivor pension or a death pension for the surviving spouse of a veteran. Now, in this case, here we get, and remember if I talked a little bit about there is a wartime uh, qualifier in there, meaning that the veteran has to have served at least one day during wartime. Now, that doesn't mean the veteran had to be on the ground in combat. That just means during those uh, specific time frames as determined by Congress that they were in the military service. So they have to have one day. Uh, prior to 1980, they just have to have 90 days of active duty. After 1980, there's some little dates in there, but roughly they have to have uh, either uh, 24 continuous months or if they were in the reserves or the National Guard, they completed their full call-up period. Again, gives back that they were called up by the federal government, you know, to go overseas to fight. I mean, this became pretty prevalent during the Gulf War and post-9-11 uh, uh, periods, you know what I'm saying, that they called out a lot of National Guards, ended up getting called up and going over to Iraq and Afghanistan and working, you know, and being uh, serving over there in the Middle East. So that component is, is in there. So they have to have some service components. Additionally, then they do look at income and assets, okay? So they don't count your home as long as you're living in the home and it's your primary abode and it's in your name or the veteran's name and spouse's name. That's not counted towards the assets, but other properties, savings, investments, and things, they do look at that. And the threshold is about, it's a little under $140,000 on that one. So that's the total amount. Um, on that one. So they look at that. So obviously if you're over that amount, okay, then you would not be qualifying for that. And the hundred, let me just clarify, the 140000 is a $140,000 income or is that no, an asset? asset? It's an asset. Maybe asset. I missed okay. Okay. This is an asset, okay? So we're talking, you know, uh, investments, properties, you know, those kinds of things. But again, the house they won't count against as long as it's in the veteran's name um, or, or the veteran and the spouse's name in this case, you know, um, and, and those types of things. And then they do look at income. 
and the way they they look at this, and again, this probably something where you need to really go talk to a VSO. Hopefully, this is kind of just getting you, you know, uh, tweaked. Maybe we should look into this. You know what I'm saying? And the way they determine your payments are there's it's it's based on obviously your income that you make, and it's combined gross household income. So it's both the spouse and the veterans' uh, income. Okay. They count, and then the best way to think of it is that they will supplement you up to a certain level based on your medical needs. On that, so there's a baseline needs, uh, and then there's what they call housebound, and then there's a highest level for what they call aid and attendance level of care. And not getting into the specific, it just means that they need some sort of daily care, helping with you know, bathing, dressing, those kinds of things, activities for daily living, you know, or they may need some custodial care because perhaps there's some memory issues and things like that that, you know, they can't be alone, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, or, uh, you know, they can wander off or they can leave things on and stuff like that. If they meet those requirements, okay, and uh, they would be called for aid and attendance, and that would be the highest level. And so here, the amount of money, again, it, it varies a little bit depending on whether dependents and all these things. But for like a married veteran, it could be up to $2,300 you could get paid additional amount of money. But the way they would look at that, it goes, they look at your income, but they end up deducting from your income uh, the, your medical payments on this one. So if you're all of a sudden, if you're in a, assisted living facility or skilled nursing care, and you could be paying, again, it varies where you're at, but probably somewhere at least $3,000 a month and almost the sky's the limit, depending when you start getting skilled care, you know, $10,000 or more, you know, on that one. All of a sudden you start deducting that from your income, you can zero out your income uh, pretty quickly and all of a sudden, you might qualify for an additional $2,300 on that one. A single vet could qualify for up to uh, a little over $2,000 a month. So, again, this is probably not enough to pay for the full care, but perhaps it's just enough to supplement, you know, the veteran to, to make it now uh, financially viable where they don't really have to pull into their, uh, their assets and to do that. Or at least not dip in quite so much. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is to sort of be pay attention that as situations change, that the that the benefits, the VA benefits may change. Yes. And it sounds like probably upper, upper or lower. Let me ask another question, though, relative to spouses, because I'm sure that we have a lot of listeners that the veteran himself or herself probably possibly has passed, but, um, but then there is a, a remaining spouse. So, so how does all of this apply to the spouse? And, and, and is there, um, is there a certain amount of time that people have to be married in order for the spouse to receive the benefits? Okay, so a couple of really good questions in there. Okay, so uh, 
for their spouse, for their surviving spouse. But again, we have the same wartime and, and service requirements that we did for the veteran, you know. So have to have served during at least one day during wartime, uh, 90 days prior to 1980, or the continuous requirements and things after 1980 on that one. So as long as there's a surviving spouse on that. Uh, in general, the way the VA uh, <clears throat> works this is that uh, as long as you're married, when you get when passing of the veteran, okay, you would be eligible for it. If, if you're divorced, generally speaking, and it's almost across the board for other things as well, uh, that pretty much uh, makes you not eligible for veterans, the VA benefits on that. That, that divorce kind of severs the eligibility for it. There may, there's a few ways perhaps around it, but this is kind of general you might want to talk to your BSO again, but probably more than likely, if if your parents had gotten divorced on that one, the, the non-veteran spouse would not be eligible for any of the VA benefits on that. Um, then, then the amount of money they're, they're still looking at less than one hundred and forty thousand dollars. That that uh, threshold is still the same, but the amount of money that the surviving spouse could get is around $1,300. So it's less than what the veteran would get. So that's the max that potentially could be there. And that's based on, you know, uh, there, there's quite a few medical expenses. It's deducting from their income, you know, getting them below that $1,300, you know, then they would supplement it up to them again. You know, so if you would have you know, again, here in, in Center County, you know, roughly the baseline level is about $3,500, you know, per month to go to a personal care home. As long as the VA accepts that as a medical expense, you know, then that 3500 would be deducted. So all of a sudden, perhaps, you know, uh, the spouse is getting $2,500 a, a month, you know, on that one. All of a sudden, you know, uh, but it's costing thirty-five hundred. So if everything works out, the eligibility and the income and all these other things, all of a sudden you're paying the thirty-five hundred. When they deduct that from the twenty-five hundred that the spouse is getting, zeroes out their income. All of a sudden, they're, now they're getting you know additional thirteen hundred dollars. All of a sudden, you almost have enough to pay. At least there's probably other expenses, but you have enough to pay between her income and the VA payment that you're not having to perhaps delve into or pull out of her assets, what, what to get, you know, I'm saying as far as being able to keep him or her in, in, a, in a facility on that. Uh, I would, one thing to caution, because I think you brought up a little bit of talking about an elder law attorney and things like this. The VA, you know, does have a look back on this one. When we start talking about income and assets, so they have a three-year look back. So if 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 they're looking to somehow put things into trust or transfer funds or whatever the case may be, okay, the VA will ask you to verify if you did anything within the three years of putting in your application. Okay, they may count 
that full amount of money that you transferred, that you perhaps gifted, or whatever the case may be. It may count against your the assets to qualify for the uh, for this benefit, this pension benefit. I am really glad you mentioned that. Thank you, because that is really important information for people to have. And that's true even for, again, it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but even medical assistance, okay, I believe they have a five-year look back. So for Medicaid. there may be some ways around it, but you need to really sit down and talk with probably an elder law attorney that, that's very familiar with both of these programs, you know what I'm saying, and, and it can kind of walk you through the potential impacts of, you know, transferring the home. You know, a lot of times people – you know, they want to transfer the home to their children. Okay, that's a transfer of assets or that. You know, if you want to gift some money, you know, to, uh, you know, stu- I mean, to grant a child or somebody to go to school, you know, that would be considered a transfer, you know, of assets. That would be looked at if it was in that three-year period of time prior to your putting in for the, the, uh, this assistance. Right. And you're absolutely right. That is similar to the Medicaid situation. But that that is, I think, everywhere that still is a five-year look back. Um, that surfaces another question that really goes back to an earlier question, and then we really will move on. Um, if you were talking about the um, looking at looking at assets and looking at income and how it's the combined income and, and, you know, combined assets for various parts of this. If the, if there are substantial medical expenses for the non-veteran spouse, not the veteran, but the non-veteran spouse, do those medical expenses become considered when there are the, some of these thresholds, the hundred forty thousand um, dollars of assets and those kinds, or the income, does does the non-veteran spouse um, medical expenses get factored in? And the answer is yes. I mean, for the same thing, again, they count the full household income and assets. Okay, on the one side, so, so fair is fair. You know what I'm saying. So yeah. they need to really count all the the household medical expenses. Or okay. So they would count against, and there are some cases where potentially uh, the non-VA spouse may be in a assisted living facility, and and the uh, veteran, you know, may be home, but the way the the, the numbers run, you know what I'm saying, that the they may qualify for some money through the VA based on the primarily the medical expense coming from that uh, non-veteran spouse living in assisted living or or generating, you know, uh, high cost of medical expenses. Couldn't be in the home, you know, you could be paying a lot of money for people to come in to provide assistance too. So it doesn't necessarily just have to be in a, a facility, but if you're at home paying out of pocket, Okay, again, this is out of pocket. So there are some, you know, long-term care insurance policies and things out there too. That's not looked as as out of pocket. It, essentially, they almost look at it as just like a, an income coming in on that one. You could still be getting long-term care, you know what I'm saying, 
but still end up qualifying for it because, you know, some of those, you know, pay a hundred, you know, or $120 per day or something like that. But, you know, when you're talking maybe paying three or $400 cost a day, you know, you're still, even with that long-term care policy, you would still potentially qualify for a pension as well. One day. Great. Okay. So all of this goes back to go talk to somebody who knows yeah, your yeah. area. <laughs> we'll just keep coming back to that. Yeah, I think that's really what it is because it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, right, right. It, it's, and it's hard to really sit here and explain it, you know, right. and, you know, in a, a venue like this, because then, because then every person's different too. And there's lots of things that, that uh, balls out there maybe that uh, we haven't even talked about that would have to be looked at. Sure. But at least what this will do is give people at least a starting point and some, some thing, some things for them to be thinking about. Let's go in our last few minutes, let's go in a, in a different direction or a little bit of, or maybe the next step. And that is what about burial benefits? What burial benefits are available for veterans and or spouses? Um, and what about being buried at a national cemetery, um, Arlington or, or a, a different one? How does all of that work? Well, um, generally speaking, as long as there are some uh, uh, requirements as far as, you know, back to character of discharge, and some service time requirements, you know, things like that, that a veteran would be uh, eligible to be in a national cemetery cemetery on that one. And there's ones all around the country. Again, if you go to uh, www.va.gov and dial in cemeteries, you you can find them all over that. And they're actually run by... uh, the National Cemetery Administration, you know, NCA, which is a part of VA. Now, the interesting thing of Arlington technically is not part of the, the National Cemetery Administration. It's actually run by the Army. Okay. It's a separate entity. Uh, and they are getting full. I mean, as far as if you want to do a full casket. And so they have some requirements and things to go there. Uh, again, you would have to, generally speaking, you can't get a pre-approval for there. This You kind of have to work with your funeral home to see if you could get into there, if that's something. And we're probably talking, at this point, you'd probably have to be a wartime uh, and actually a combat veteran to get in there, I mean, on that one. As far as the National Cemetery, the rest of them, you know, they're almost all open, you know, on this one. Uh, you can get in. It's it's pretty much the plot is free of charge. You know what I'm saying. And generally speaking, uh, either you know the the casket, the body, the cremains, you get it to the front gate of the what that location. They take care of everything after that. So I mean, there would be some you know some embalming things or cremation things and stuff like that would have to be borne you know by the estate or the family. But once you kind of get the the you know, remains of the body to the front gate of that you know cemetery. They take care of everything on that, and then the spouses you know can also be buried there. And even if they predecease it, most of the ones are set up. You know, if if we're talking like a casket, it'd be one on top of the other. You, you know, what I'm saying. So uh, what happens is the way they set those up that you know the 
obviously the first one that predeceases, you know, would be buried there. And then the next, you know, spouse that passed when he or she passed would be, end up going to the same plot, you know, one on top of the other. That's how they're generally set up. Or they have like a crematorium type thing, like little locker type things that, you know, there can be two go in there as well for the cremains on that. So no cost other than, you know, you still have the regular funeral type things. I mean, they do do um, <clears throat> services there. They'll set up services and and uh, things like that. They have time. So, they, they, you know, again, you have to, as soon as you kind of figure out that, you know, that's something you want to do, you probably want to contact that individual cemetery to see when you can get it scheduled, you know, on that one, work with your, funeral home to get the transfer down there and work all those things out on that. Um, so, yeah, I remember with my father's funeral that, that we had a very specific time frame that it had to be done during this time, but it was somewhat delayed after his, after his passing um, so that he could be buried in a mm -hmm. military, yeah. uh, military burial. Um, and, and I'm assuming along with that, then again, if, if the family wanted full military rights um, to, to the honor guard and, and all of that, again, the funeral home would be able to guide that. Uh, when you're talking just, again, those types of things would be provided if we're talking, not going to like a natural cemetery, but just in a, a local cemetery, Generally speaking, most of the funeral homes, they, they end up contacting these service organizations. You know, they kind of have their contacts and things. Now, the, the militaries do provide some of those, you know, uh, honor guards as well on that one. But the, the funeral homes, generally speaking, know exactly how to contact and who to take care of on that one. So they should do that. Again, it might be something if that's, uh, again, you have to make a, you know, the wishes known. If you know that is, you know, to your parent or, you know, or whatever, you might want to just double check. You know, most people know what funeral home they're going to be going to. You can just check with the funeral home and see what, what they have and kind of get an idea of what's expected and what you'll need to do in preparation uh, on that. So you kind of just know what, what to expect to happen, what you will need to do. And sometimes, you know, that's what the, you know, the, the, the older, you know, parent or whatever, you know, they just want to know is taken care of, you know, on that as well. Right, 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 right. This is all really good information. I'm going to close this out with going in the complete opposite direction for just a few minutes. Um, so, okay, my mom, my dad, my veteran loved one is doing fine. No problem at all. But we want to be prepared. So what what does someone need to do? What what can they do now before there is anything needed in addition to listening to this podcast? What would you recommend? <laughs> well, it's paperwork probably. Okay. So key thing here is uh, if you can talk with them or if they have perhaps a file set aside, you know, when did they serve in, in the service? You know, do they have their discharge papers, either the DD-214 after the 1950s, you know, or prior to that, each individual service, you know, that shows when they went into service, when he or she got out of the service, a character of discharge, 
those types of things. So you want to have that available, you know, as well. Um, know what that is. You're really going to need to know their finances, okay, um, on that one. And sometimes, you know, some parents and people may be reluctant to do that. But uh, unfortunately, having gone through this both personally, you know, with my parents and, and working with lots of vets here and families of vets here, that's something that really needs to be kind of understood on that one, where the different income, you know, is, where their assets are parked, you know what I'm saying, what they have out there, because it gets very difficult to try to track some of these things down, either perhaps after they pass or sometimes after maybe some memory issues come up, they forget where things are, you know, you know, type thing, because there's been a few times that, you know, I usually ask them to look at their uh, income, I mean, look at their tax return, and all of a sudden, I, I see in their tax return that they had this, you know, $400 uh, interest payment, you know, from so-and-so, you know, from such-and-such such bank. They say, hey, well, where did this come from? And because I said, I didn't see any assets you provided to me. Oh, I don't know. So they go to the bank, and lo and behold, you know, they find a $400,000. This actually happened to me. Actually, I think it was about $250,000 account that the, uh, the family was not aware of. That was just been kept there type thing. So you just need to know that because all these things are going to have to be submitted to the VA. They're going to want verification of these assets, of the income. <coughs> and they do check with the IRS, you know what I'm saying? When that's what, so whatever you tell them on theirs, they double check with the IRS. So um, that's why you need to know that. And again, at some point for the estate and be able to figure out is something that's useful to know early on as well because you just don't know you know at some point we're all going to die but it's always good to know you know what the assets and income and things were coming for those you know your parents or your older sibling or whatever the case may be and even if you don't know details of dollars to know where to go yeah. you know where 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 there are accounts. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Brian, this is excellent information. Is there? Any, we have covered a whole lot of territory, but is there anything else that you think would be important for listeners to know? Um, haven't talked about. Well, I think we we kind of harped on this, but again. Um, I, a lot of times I go and I talk and I end up having to try to talk for hours. I still don't hit everything. So we've only really hit on the highlights of different things. So my hope here is that maybe tweak you a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Let's go, you know, find my father's and my mother's, you know, discharge papers. When were they in the service? You know, maybe you'll find some neat things out with some good stories from them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You maybe find out that they were in some major battles and things like that too that they maybe were reluctant to tell you. They got some major awards and things on that one. But, uh, you know, but you need to kind of take all those things. Don't assume that they're not eligible for one of these things. Talk to somebody, a VSO or somebody else. Just get that double set of eyes and say, do you think or whatever, and, and talk with them before that. Just don't automatically think. Because there may be some things you can do, uh, perhaps, that would make them eligible now. On that, so. Good advice. 
good advice and great information. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing such great information with us today. I feel very certain that there will be lots of people who will be listening to this and really better understanding what what they need to know about um, what they need to know in order that they may best care for their their veteran um, their veteran loved one or the or the surviving spouse of a veteran. Thank you also to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this podcast has truly been helpful to you and that you will share it with others that you think may benefit. Before we end, we certainly want to thank Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, our sponsor for this podcast and all of our podcasts. We are indeed grateful for their support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of our caregiver community podcasts on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we hope you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP, our educational programs, and our local chapters. And if there are other topics you'd like to address as a podcast, please let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our background, our education, our career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, caring for and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important. So please care well for your loved ones, but also remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now.